This episode of the KingCast is brought to you by Mubi, presenting the new film Decision to Leave. This twisted romance comes from Park Chan-wook, the acclaimed director of Old Boy and The Handmaiden. Critics call Decision to Leave masterful. Don't miss the Cannes Prize-winning triumph that is now South Korea's Academy Award submission for Best International Feature Film. Decision to Leave starts October 14th in New York and L.A., before expanding to theaters nationwide, get your tickets at movie.com backslash decision to leave. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash decision to leave. And I've seen it. I saw that at Fantastic Fest. It's good shit. You should watch it. Park Chan looks always good shit. Yeah. Always good shit. Always dependable. And I'm here to talk to you about We Love Video, which is kind of based on a big mom and pop video store here in Austin named I Love Video uh, that unfortunately shut down in 2020. Uh, but like, you know, all this nostalgia we get about Blockbuster and all that stuff. I've never been a part of that. Blockbuster was always that kind of evil chain store that was knocking out yeah. these these Fuck video stores. I love had a great selection. They were, you know, um, helped make Austin the big movie town it is. And Austin was kind of devastated when it shut down in 2020. With the help from its original founder and a small group of movie lovers, they are fighting to bring it back as a volunteer-run nonprofit video library and screening center called We Love Video. We Love Video is a registered 501c3 organization, and they will provide access to almost 130,000 DVDs, Blu-rays, and VHS tapes. Using a tiered membership-based structure in lieu of membership fees, those who choose to volunteer at We Love Video will receive a free membership. And We Love Video is starting fundraising with a live comedy television show on October 30th at the Fallout Theater in Austin, Texas. Doors open at 8 p.m. and tickets can be purchased on Eventbrite or through Fallout's website at falloutcomedy.com shows. We Love Video needs all your help to preserve this incredible collection and make it available to Austinites. Their Kickstarter will have exclusive merch from Super Yaki and have other goodies like Letterboxd patron accounts to go along with your donation. Want to pitch in on the Kickstarter or volunteer? Check out welovevideo.org. Nice. And I am here to tell you about our corporate overlords at Fangoria. In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years, and Fangoria is better than ever with each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head to Fangoria.com to learn more and to subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% off your yearly subscription. Indeed. I think it's time to get on with that show. What about you? Do it. Hi. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Well, sometimes that is better. Hello, and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. Uh, folks, we are we are joined by uh, someone who really, I, I don't think, needs a serious introduction Mm-mm. on this show. He's He's been on the show a number of times. We consider him uh, one of the... Uh, you know, we we talk a lot about the Mount Rushmore of guests mm-hmm. for the King Cast, and this gentleman uh, certainly qualifies. Maybe our maybe the first member of that club. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll, I'll let the readers decide that or the George yeah. Washington of our scream at me. Yeah. The George, yeah. The George Washington, yes. the, the gay George Washington. I think. <laughs> um, well, and shouldn't that be Lincoln, but he's not on the mountain. Cause isn't Lincoln the gay one? I've never been there. <laughs> um, well, anyway, uh, as he has just revealed, our guest this week is Brian Fuller. Uh, he's done a ton of stuff we're big fans of. He's been on the show a bazillion times. So I've introduced him. I, I don't know how many times over the course of the show. We're not going to go through that again, but I will add something to his resume in that uh, he is he is the person responsible for the new Queer for Fear documentary series that's on Shudder, which is absolutely excellent. And we wanted to help him get the, the word out about the series. It had been a while since we talked to Brian. There's a lot of shit happening in the horror world right now. So we've welcomed him back to the King's King. Fuck. So close. So close. Give me, give me, give me. So we will welcome him back to the King cast stage. He's here today. Ladies and gentlemen, give him, uh, what the fuck is wrong with me today? You leave all this in. Let's give him a big round of applause. <laughs> Fuck my ass. I cannot get anything right today. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Brian Fuller. I'm done. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> How have you been? Uh, this is why the people tune in, baby. That's why yeah. they, they love This is why it. you write out your intros ahead of time is what you say. <laughs> Brian, it's, it's no, been a while. So lovely to be back. Thank you for having me. Yeah. It's we, been we, a, we, we couldn't welcome Halloween in without... Uh, Having a little bit more Brian Fuller on the show. So yeah. thank, thank you so much thank for you, thank being you. our Halloween episode. It feels like it's been a while, but we did technically do that Christine commentary some months mm. ago. I guess we, it's just been a while since you've been in the main feed. Yeah, it's it's been a second, but uh also a, you've been doing a lot. You've been oh, yeah. Bangor, banging it out in Bangor. I did. The King yeah. Cast seems to be exploding in pop culture uh awareness. Oh, for it, sure. You know, uh, I I would normally be humble about that, but uh, it, that does seem to be the case. I've talked to some people. I was I was pitching a potential guest the other day. Um, well, I'll say who it was. It was Flying Lotus. Uh, I was a big fan of his segment in the new VHS 99. We ended up following each other on Twitter. And I was like, hey, man, you don't know who I am. And I hate to be a guy who gets a follow and then pitches you on something. But... <laughs> I'm a mm-hmm. big fan of your fucking work. I think you're a madman. I'd love to get you on the show. And he's like, oh, yeah, I know the King cast. I've heard of that before. It's like, no shit. All right. That's pretty cool. So, yeah, people are people are finally waking up, you know, taking notice <laughs> of the show. <laughs> yeah, but <clears throat> the Bangor and Bangor was uh, was great. Uh, went off without a hitch. Uh, and which have is... you discussed that on the podcast? Is that is has that been uh, explored or can, or can we do that now? Ooh. We can we can do a little bit of that. Um, yeah. I know we're we're our this week's bonus episode is going to be, you know, us like really going through the 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 motions on the days that we spent out there and what we did. But in general, yeah, we can we can definitely talk about it. Uh, For sure, it was Eric. Eric, I've, I've been talking too much. You take over. <laughs> uh, no, it was incredible, man. Like it's. It was one of those things, like, we didn't, we've done a few appearances now where we have taken the show out as part of another thing, like Fantastic Fest or the Overlook Festival, and that's incredible, but, like, it's it's a whole nother level of, you know, having people come to your event, right, where it's 
like that that crowd was there for us it wasn't there you know it was for the show it wasn't there for like oh we happen to be here as well you know at this other thing right so um it, it was totally a if you know if we build it will they come kind of question you know at the beginning where we're just like well you know i think we can get away with doing this and it'll only cost us a few thousand bucks out of pocket or whatever and and uh and we ended up breaking even on the on the trip you know i think a little bit more uh uh, because of uh, everybody being so cool and coming out and, you know, we were willing to lose money on it. And now it's like, cool, we didn't lose money. Maybe we can do another one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and I just want to, I want to give an on-air uh, appreciation to, to Vespi, who really is the brains of this operation. I think that should be clear <laughs> by now to anyone who's ever listened to this show. But um, he really fucking took the ball and ran with it in terms of, the planning of this, like, and in terms of contacting people, you know, I'm in the background making dick jokes and fucking like, Hey, what if we did this, you know, some stupid idea. And he, meanwhile, Vespi's putting in the work, you know, Vespi's sending out the emails to the Bangor arts exchange and SK tours and all the other people that were, you know, so helpful to us on this event and getting that shit done. Eric, you did a flawless job and, and, thank you. you know, that was, an amazing thing to witness because usually on a thing like this, you'll have at least one or two things go wrong. There's just so oh, many yeah. moving pieces that, you know, you know, shit's gonna, <laughs> you, you can only plan for so much, but man, it was, it, that, it was I mean, great. Went off without a hitch. Well, I, th- I appreciate you saying that. And thank you very much. Uh, it helped that the Bangor arts exchange and the SK tours folks, they were just, they bent over backwards to make everything as go as smoothly as possible. And, uh, and also got to say thanks to Mike Flanagan and Kate Siegel yes. because it, it, I know that a lot of people, you know, were, you know, diehard listeners of the show and they wanted to do the live recording. But, you know, let's be honest, the star power there was really Kate and Mike. And not only did they, uh, you know, come ready to, you know, have fun, they were so personable. They made sure everybody that was there got some time with them. You know, they mm-hmm. had, had that, you know, we had a a VIP dinner thing and like they made, they made the rounds. They were like, they started sitting with us and then we didn't see them for the next two and a half hours. Cause they were at the rest of the, the tables kind of making sure everybody got, got some, you know, one-on-one time. And I, I've heard from so many people who went out there that was, you know, were so blown away by their hospitality and their, them being so cool. And, you know, I don't know. And it was a dream come true for us to go, you know, kick it in King's backyard and, and, you know, we had this incredible lake house and it was like the most relaxing, you know, thing. All yeah. the leaves were changing. It was like weed is legal there. What, how yeah. Was that could have gone? yeah. 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 Weed um, is legal there. We yeah. we stumbled across a uh, a bunch of random Stephen King trivia while we were searching for edibles. What surprised <laughs> yeah. you in terms of the Stephen King trivia? Well, what did you know, well, at one point we went into a dispensary and. <clears throat> um, it was me, Vespi, and his brother. And like we walked in the door and they were like, do you have your medical card? I said, no, because I'm from Texas, you know. <laughs> right. But we had been to a dispensary like the night before where a medical card wasn't required. And the guy behind the counter was like, yeah, it's a weird thing. And he explained it. I didn't understand it. It had, you know, some bureaucratic nonsense. Like some of them require that. Some of them don't. Uh. We're like, like, all right, man. Well, no problem. We'll we'll hit up a different place and turned around to leave. And he goes, oh, by the way, did you know that this building uh, was the site of the uh, industrial laundry 
where Stephen King worked that inspired the Mangler. And we all like turned around like, what the fuck? Because we hadn't mentioned Stephen King up to that point. Uh, Vespi was wearing like a Stephen King hat or something. Yeah. But, uh, but like I was just I was stunned that this guy was just offering up Mangler trivia in the middle of like a totally unremarkable conversation. Um, and and he, then he was all of like 22 or 23. He was a young guy, yeah. too. Yeah. And so then when we were on the tour, I was we like drove by that place and I was like, hey, the guy inside that place told us that place is where the industrial laundry used to be that King worked at and that inspired the Mangler. Is that true? And the tour guide was like, no, that was a different location. We were like, well, <laughs> False Sam wasn't right, but that was a great story. It was just like a great interaction. I don't even care if he didn't know what he was talking about. Love you, Sam. Sorry, I couldn't yeah. shop in your establishment. <laughs> um, but, but Brian, I do want to tell you that we... We got back from the live recording of the sh- the show, the the banger and banger, like the thing at the actual arts exchange where it was the four of us on stage. We got back that night and immediately started kicking around ideas for what we want to do next year. We have come up with uh, a pretty ambitious plan, but it, it this plan would involve getting the Mount Rushmore of King Cass guests all in one place at one time. And we will be inviting you to you to that i i would love to go i was i i was uh suffering from fomo uh on online watching your adventures well i don't want to i don't want to say what it is yet i will uh i'll pitch it to you off air but i i do think you will you will want in on this it's gonna be nuts and uh yeah we hopefully we can make it work that'd be fun i would love it as long as you're not you know balls deep in another documentary series or something well, uh, uh, you know, it, 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 that, that documentary series was delightful, but oh my God, uh, kept you busy, huh? It's a staggering amount of, of work and information juggling and it's, you know, human decoupage. So, <laughs> it, 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 uh, yeah, there was no way that I could have attended this year because of all the queer for fear stuff, but, sure. uh, I am marking my calendar for next year. Sure. Well, make sure that's marked and uh, congrats on the doc series. I'm two episodes in, uh, and uh, I, I the, the biggest compliment I can put to what you've accomplished so far is that a lot of your sense of humor seems to be showing through in okay. in what is being featured because there's a whole ass fucking segment about whether Mrs. Danvers is yeah. a top or a bottom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, on this and it, the if, uh, from Rebecca, if I'm not mistaken, right? So, yes. yeah, and and it's not something that like there's a throwaway joke. It like legit goes on for a minute where everybody, all these you know Kim Pierce <laughs> and these you know very serious Karen Kusama, like these very serious like awesome analytical you know professorial. I'm sit down and teach me something. People are are having uh, an internal debate on whether or not Mrs. Danvers is a top or a bottom. Well, and specifically a service top or a service bottom, right. which is a fascinating distinction because you're, if you're a service top, you're simultaneously sub and dom, mm-hmm. which is fascinating. Uh, <laughs> and, and like what, what alchemy of triggering experiences led you to that specific fetish is uh, very, very interesting to me. <laughs> I'm going to have your your delivery of the line sub and um, in my head for the rest of the day. That was so good. Uh, and and Queer for Fear is like, 
you know, this is just like the latest documentary series that uh, that Shutter has done along these lines. You know, they also released Horror Noir, some other some other things. Yeah, I, I loved loved Horror Noir. Well, Horror Noir um, was really the progenitor of, of Queer for Fear in so many ways. It, you know, it was both of these uh, expressions were produced by Phil Noble, who, uh, you know, pulled Horror Noir together and wanted to facilitate the telling of that story as a a straight white guy who is very interested in marginalized voices in the horror community and, and wanted to do again with Queer for Fear. So sure. it's... It's really Phil pulling these ideas together as much as we'd, we'd like to say, like, oh, like, you know, all, like all of us queers did it by ourselves. But no, we did it with uh, straight white allies who are most of the executives uh, that we dealt with on a daily basis on at Shutter were, were straight and but cared deeply about the marginalized voice in this in this genre space. Phil's really good with that shit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He genuinely gives a shit about it and he's, he's curious. That's one of the things I I love. Uh, (laughs) Sub Phil. Um, He, (laughs) Phil is, uh, he's, he's, he's a naturally curious dude. You know what I mean? Like, and, and he just is a a wealth of information. Um, I love giving him shit. He's like my older brother. So we constantly pick on each other, but, uh, you know, he he kills it with these things. And uh, I'm so glad that y'all, you know, uh, came together on this thing and that, you know, the results are are so fantastic. Yeah, he generally cares. <laughs> and that's that's um, amazing to see. And, uh, you know, we're in that weird space that everyone is so reticent to give credit to straight white guys uh for anything and <laughs> we well we kind of deserve it just, well, just to be <laughs> yes but i think yeah. we're in trouble as a society when we are using blanket statements of any right. kind sure and and phil definitely uh doesn't doesn't color within the lines of the expectations of that demographic no that's 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 true um and sometimes i'm i'm going to say this uh, sometimes Phil might care too much. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, like for instance, at uh, he, Phil came out to the uh, the banger and banger, the banger in Bangor. Excuse me, I don't want to get <laughs> pilloried by the locals. But uh, and and so we had him uh, host the trivia segment of the uh, show that we did. And I think Phil was unprepared for the lack of chaos that ensued, like during that <laughs> that segment. Um, uh, he's been on, he's been on the show a bunch of times. I know he's heard the show because he'll reference it to me from from time to time. But I think he even he was cut off guard by the uh, the chaotic energy of what went down during that segment, <laughs> and was just like, I don't know what the f- I don't know what the fuck to do. Like he he just had a look <laughs> on his face, like like he was taking it very seriously, and we were not. And you know, um, that's just Phil. Phil yeah, is prices. No, uh, well, mm-hmm. bragging rights, and yeah, I'm not even sure I remember how it turned out, and I was there. You know, me and me and Kate <laughs> got smoked, basically. Yeah, yeah. No, I think Mike and I uh, won hands down, but we all agreed that uh, that Kate won at the end. Just to, okay, but so, when you so, say you and Mike won, let's be honest, Mike was answering all those questions. 
not oh, was, so much. Was Mike the not so much. The, uh, trivia was he the the trivia king? Well, here's what happened. Like it, it was a thing where it could like bounce back and forth. You know, depending on like if one team got the answer wrong. Oh right. So right. right off the bat, like me and Kate got a question. We were teamed together, and Eric and Flanagan were on the other team. Family right? feud style. Yeah. Well, yes. we wanted to destroy a marriage. Was the point? Yeah. And yeah. Well. <clears throat> Admirable yeah. goals. Yeah, of course. And um, see if we could split the King cast and <laughs> the marriage of Mike and Kate at the same time. <laughs> well, I just, well, yeah, sure. I don't, I don't, I'm terrible with trivia. So I'm just like, my brain is pudding smooth like an egg, as I always tell Eric. Um, <laughs> but, but like we, like me and Kate got our first question wrong right off the bat. And then it flipped over to Eric and, and Mike. And Mike immediately had the answer. And mm. then Eric, and then Phil was just like, oh, they got the steal. So once again to uh, Team Flanagan uh, Bespy. Okay. And Mike was just like banging them out one after another. Apparently, Bespy is claiming now that he was he was also answering some of those questions. People have I was. To... You can listen back to the recording. No, I don't need to do that. I, I think I want to go by my, <laughs> by, my, by my memory here. But really, the point of this story was just that Phil was so he was there to be a professional and do his yeah. job. And yeah, he had his wife like gore and stuff. Like they they were, (laughs) yeah. yeah, I I get what you mean. It's like you know he he went up there to to do the job, and and he had a little bit of like that. You know the when you got that four children. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sub at school for like a rowdy class (laughs) that that knows that they can walk all over him. Yeah, he had a little bit of that look of like fear and like, how did I lose control of this? No, (laughs) no. But I mean, you know, to be serious for a second, Phil did like come up and he. Uh, unfortunately this didn't make it into the actual recording because uh the sound team at the event center forgot to turn on his mic for the first like three minutes he was up there so i had to remove this section uh because you can barely like hear him in the background and that's it that's all you could get um but he was very you know he said some super nice things about the show and about scott you know in particular and about you know us starting it and you know kind of living the dream and all this stuff and it was like very heartwarming and and uh yes. and then he that led to the chaos of uh of <laughs> all these screaming 2001 beginning of that movie monkeys throwing bones around so, <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> for 20 minutes <laughs> but was there, uh, a monolith? was there a what a monolith in that in that uh metaphor what would be the monolith in that we were the screaming monkey you know, uh, I guess probably the, the mary kate doll that i that i bought for for, <laughs> the for michelle Kate's taylor needle. doll yeah i went yeah. antiquing that day uh in 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 bangor with uh D- daniel danger our art director and bought her the most you know really upsetting doll that i could find in one of their antique stores it was a mary kate uh olsen or it was a michelle tanner doll from fucking full house yeah oh my god and it said full house on her fucking mom jeans <laughs> and uh the, the the resemblance was striking it was just really upsetting to look at anyway i gifted kate with that on stage um anyway uh the point being we love phil uh we're 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 so happy that y'all got to make uh queer for fear together and you know this is just like one of the yet another thing that that horror fans are just kind of feasting on right now we have we've got it really good right now right mm. There's like, a lot of good horror happening. There's a lot of yeah, that's what I'm saying. But, well, like, yeah, still, it's, As, there's a lot of it, which is a good thing. There's something for everyone, really. Like, you, um, go ahead. It, Eric. I, I would like to posit that this is 
part of a cycle that always happens. Um, and that audiences almost always turn to horror after a, like a, a nationwide or a worldwide trauma. Right. So you have like post world war two, there was the explosion of, of, you know, B movies and, you know, nuclear scare, you know, horror and sci-fi and after 9-11, there was a, you know, huge e- explosion of, of found footage and, uh, EJ horror, you know, that, that thrived and was doing huge. And then after the pandemic, you know, we have this, this wave and it seems like audiences are eating up either superhero movies or horror movies and like everything else is left in the dust. Um, and so maybe that would be a good jumping off point. Do you think that the reason why horror is doing so spectacularly well at the box office and people are going to the theaters for it is some sort of, uh, uh, I don't know, like reaction. Yeah. Trauma reaction. You think that that, that could be it. I'm, I'm sure that there is an element because everybody feels so oppressed in their own way, whether it's, they feel oppressed by the government or they feel oppressed by their neighbor, uh, mask mandates, all like whenever we get into a situation where people are instructed how to behave in order to navigate a tense situation, somebody always gets traumatized because they don't want to be told what to do. There's that basic level of kind of asshole trauma. And then there is the real trauma of living through a pandemic where a million people died. <laughs> right. Yes. There's there's both of those things existing and one will be used to invalidate the other and and the social discourse but of of course we're coming out of out of a collective's trauma as a society and as a planet so bring on the horror so we can live vicariously through horror narratives that aren't directly impacting our lives. Right. Yeah, there were a couple of stabs made at made making like quarantine movies and and COVID movies like during the pandemic, mm. and I could not imagine a thing I would want to watch less mm. like during Wait, that time. You see, sick. Yeah, like uh, tell me about that because I missed it at, okay. at Fantastic Fest. Yeah, I couldn't sick. see it either. It's it's a it's a Kevin Williamson joint, and it was done as a quickie during the pandemic. And I believe it was sort of, you know, we we started quarantining in March of 2020. Is that right? Like March 13th was the the day. And then I think they wrote this in September of, of 2020 and then filmed it in January of of uh, 2021. Mm. Uh, No, no, it was, it was, it was somewhere in, in 2021, they filmed this and, but it is going back to that April, March moment. And it's, it's not a, a tentpole element to the storytelling, but it is part of the world building of the experience of two young college students who are quarantining at one of their uh, family's cabin in the woods, essentially. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes a, a Kevin Williamson slasher, which, uh, you know, he is the, he has taken all of the lessons of the chase 
and he will kind of boil them down to Friday the 13th part two mm. and Steve Miner's steady cam pursuit of Amy Steele through cabins and the woods <laughs> and her convertible VW to illustrate how to unpack a chase sequence. And, and that's really how he reinvigorated horror in the nineties uh, and is doing it again because one of one of my complaints about the screen movie that came out earlier this year was that there was no chases. And so I was yeah. like, this doesn't feel like a Kevin Williamson joint because there are no set pieces. Everybody's turning around and getting stabbed by somebody hiding right behind them. And <laughs> therefore, it wasn't really scary because it, everybody had an instant death. And uh, despite the, the one at the beginning uh, that was a little bit elongated, but mostly was just uh people backing up into knives that they didn't see. <laughs> and and it's it's not as satisfying uh for me yeah. as an audience member because i'm going to see people run for their lives right. and that's something <laughs> right. that kevin understands implicitly as a storyteller and what you get essentially in this movie is an act one and an act three and huh. like act two doesn't exist forget about act two Act one, characters established, and then at the the twenty minute mark, or, or they they just run for the rest of the movie. Huh, and that's, that's fucking rad. It's awesome, and the uh, the actors in it are amazing, and the directing is thrilling, and it is it is it is a very simple little movie about our kind of collective trauma. So I'm, I'm, I'm really curious to see how people react to it because part of that first act's uh, entertainment value is bringing everybody back to the horror of standing in line at the grocery store and somebody behind you coughs. Mm, and, right. and that's, you know, terrifying and taking advantage of the anonymity of, of mask wearing to build tension. And it's just the, the, it was so fun to see a movie where I was at the edge of my seat giggling and laughing and rooting for the protagonists. And uh, I, I hope it, it leaves a mark when it comes out next year. Fuck yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing that now. Hell yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's how, about Barba- how about Barbarian? You mentioned you just saw Barbarian before the show. You like that one? I did see Barbarian and I thought Barbarian was a blast. I was never scared. Mm-hmm. Um, which is sort of like, you know, the, uh, for me, I can't immerse myself in the tone of a movie if everybody is so stupid that, uh, the plot only proceeds by their stupidity and Barbarian is one of those movies. I had a blast, but everybody was so stupid. I was never scared. But in the case of the Justin Long character, the stupidity of the character and the ego of the character is kind of the the point, right? Yeah. For for him. Yes. Uh, but I see what you mean for the the rest. But but I, I will push back a little bit. Uh, the movie on the whole didn't scare me, but there's that moment in the middle where you're still not sure. And I'll, I'll say this uh, vaguely, so I won't spoil it if you haven't seen it. But you you're not sure what the threat is yet, but you are, you know, they've discovered the different tunnels and whatnot. Right. And there's that little moment where something comes out of the shadows and you're not sure what it is. 
and that like really goosed me in a way I haven't been goosed in a, a long time in a horror movie. So I will give it that. Yeah. Th- I mean, those moments were really fun for me. Like I can, right. I can still be entertained and have fun at a horror movie that doesn't scare me. Right. Uh, sure. But in order to scare me, I have to believe in the, the characters motivations doing what they're doing in order to push the plot forward. And if it feels like they're just pushing the plot forward and they're not pushing their character forward, it, it, it it isn't as satisfying, but mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that I can't be entertained. Have you seen I a wanna... movie that scared you? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, my my interjection here is that most horror movies don't scare me. You know, what? there are there are ones that the ones that do. You know, we're talking about shit like Session Nine, Kill List, A Dark Song, The Wicker Man. Right. You know, uh, Under Session the Skin. You know, uh, like these movies are genuinely upsetting. I saw a fucking. Have you seen um, uh, Speak No Evil? No. Good mm-hmm. fucking Lord. It, it just came out within the last year. Um, really, really fucked me up. And I saw another horror movie the other day that I can't actually admit to having seen yet on the air that <laughs> uh, isn't explicitly a horror movie, but it works as a horror movie. And it fucked me up. But good. Like. I'm like, I'll probably never watch it again in the same way that I wouldn't watch uh, compliance again. If you've ever seen that, mm, like very happy that I've seen it, um, you know, in a sense, you know, I've seen a powerful piece of filmmaking, but holy shit, not for throwing on for funsies. You know, right. most most of the horror stuff I watch is to be to be entertained. And that's why I've been so bummed out by this. The, the trend of like these kind of dreary horror movies that are so focused on trauma and whatnot. Like, I just want a fun fucking time. I want to see some violence. I want to be, you know, not, not scared, but maybe spooked from time to time with a well-earned jump scare, a jump scare, well-earned being the operative phrase there, um, which smile didn't do. Uh, And, and I think that, yeah, don't get me started on that shit. I kind of want to get you started on smile because (laughs) I, I have never, or uh, I, I had such a good time seeing Smile, but I don't know if I had the time that the storytellers uh, intended because <laughs> the birthday party scene, ha- I had tears rolling down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, fucking, uh, I just look. I, Scott I feel doesn't like, know what we're talking about. He he bailed before that scene. <laughs> yeah, I I did not make it all the way through Smile. Um, <laughs> my my position on Smile is that. The, the the position I will give on this show that <laughs> thousands of people are going to listen to is that uh, I'm very much in the minority on Smile. Don't listen to me. Just go enjoy the movie with everyone else. You know, uh, I'm not going to I would feel it's bad, fun. like really tuning up on this thing, you know, but it was just it was just not for me in a. I, I feel like that director. Uh, has a great movie in them. You know, that's like that's like a new guy. Like I, I'd, I'd never mm-hmm. seen anything that he did. And there's stuff in there's filmmaking on display in that movie where I'm like, this is a this is a talented guy, you know, yeah. especially if this is his first feature. But this script is just not working for me. And I, you know, the the story didn't work. The scares didn't work, et cetera, et cetera. So but again, I'm in the minority on that one. So I don't want to well, belabor the point. But, you know, Hellraiser was also very divisive lately. Right. Uh, smile was somewhat divisive. Um, 
my barbarian was divisive. Like barbarian was divisive. Yeah. Uh, so I, I feel, but but the 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 important thing is that these movies are making fucking money. I mean, maybe right. not Hellraiser because it de- debuted on Hulu, but that's not <laughs> right. that's not Hellraiser's fault. We can't blame Pinhead for that. Um, right. These movies are inspiring conversations. And in most cases, they're making money at the box office, just as horror yeah. always has. Mm-hmm. And so even when I see a horror movie where I'm like, yeah, I didn't like that. Um, if it's a success, it's good news for other horror movies. So a rising tide floats all boats. It's it's yes. a good thing fundamentally. Yes. Yeah. I, and I all of those movies I was never bored by. And that's like the 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 kind of the benchmark. Like I can sit through a movie that is not necessarily scary. And I can sit through a movie with dumb characters doing dumb things to push the, the plot forward. As long as I'm not bored. Right. Sure. That's if you're bringing titty monsters with like <laughs> breastfeeding fetish, uh, you know, ex- that level of exploitation, I'm in and <laughs> I, I will hang around for the end credits. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, to Scott's point, the one of the interesting things that I think we we can talk about via smile is it's not just that it's making a shit ton of money. It's making a shit ton of money after almost going straight to streaming. Right. And then, yes. then the, the test scores, I guess prompted execs to like, Oh, maybe we should try it in the theaters. Um, and like even terrifier two and all this stuff, you know, all these movies are making crazy money, but in the smiles case, particularly it feels like a bellwether to be like, Oh yeah, we don't just have to keep making quote unquote content for, for streaming. Look what happens when we take this, What's my, what was the budget for that? Like under 10, probably, right? Yeah, so, yeah. like $7 million, $8 million movie, put it in theaters and, and it makes 160 something million so far and counting, you know? And, and, uh, I don't know. There's just something about that that like gives me some hope for the future, uh, because, you know, just for so long, especially during the pandemic, you know, the trend was just like get everything on people's TVs as fast as possible. And, and, uh, when horror works well, seeing it in the theater is like, you know, a uh, godly experience almost, you know? Well, the, the budget, according to Wikipedia, for Smile is $17 Seventeen. million. 17. Yeah, well, that's which a pretty is big not... budget, but it's not for, yeah. for a, a first-time horror movie. But I wonder if Prey changed uh, some executives' minds mm. about what what is suitable for streaming and what is, what is not. I mean, certainly Disney's absorption of, of 20th, uh, as a studio was really about buttressing Hulu as a platform for, for movies in a way right. that, that Netflix has established a, an audience for come see these big movies with big movie stars. The, they're, everything is soulless, but it's free and, and just <laughs> come to us. And then you get something like Prey, which is bespoke and clearly made with a lot of affection and respect for the franchise and overperforms on a platform service. And the discourse is, I wish I could have seen this at a movie theater. Right. And uh, I wonder if because of that, we are going to see some shifts in things that were necessarily plan for streaming but uh there is an openness to putting them in a, in, a, in a theater for a couple of weeks for people to enjoy as they the filmmakers intended you know mm. big loud and and in your face 
Well, and to your point, like you look at uh, Glass Onion, the Knives Out sequel, you know, that's Netflix's, you know, paid Ryan Johnson $400 million, you know, to make that and another sequel, you know, for their platform. But they're also, for the first time ever, like releasing that theatrically uh, for a couple of weeks, you know, before it jumps on the platform. So we might be seeing, you know, I know this is a Stephen King podcast, and I swear we're going to start talking about Stephen King here soon. But <laughs> yeah, we're like forty minutes in, <laughs> right? But uh, you know, but the you know, it's really interesting. We're in an interesting place right now for genre and for movies on the whole, where it feels like the the tug of war between streaming and theatrical is finally, you know, it's finally like going leaning towards theatrical for the first time in a long time in this in this uh, tug of war. So I don't Which know. It, it's only good news. Yes. So to get this runaway minecart back on track, <laughs> um, Brian, we, we reached out about uh, having you on the show uh, again. And uh, I was, you said yes. And then I said, all right, great. What title do you want to talk about? And you said uh, queer for king. And uh, I know better than to second guess whatever your ideas are. So I was just like, sure, let's do that. Um, oh, but then please second guess me, please, please, please waterproof <laughs> yeah. these ideas. <laughs> Someone's got to do it. We can talk about a lot of different stuff in this under this umbrella. And I, I think where we should start is here. The fact that early in his career, you know, like, like many other people who were alive, uh, you know, in the seventies and maybe had retrograde attitudes towards certain subsets of the population or, uh, special groups, uh, King's writing about gay folks or just even referencing them in passing was was a little bit clunky. Um, I'm of the opinion that he has improved that element of his writing by a, a great degree over the years. And um, I'm just I'm just curious about how you as a, just as a starting point, when you think about King writing queer characters or about queer characters, like where does your head go? What's your overall impression? Well, my, my first position is that I, I can't help but see a very interesting parallel to how King handled and handles queer people in his work and how Hitchcock handled queer people in his work. And one of the things with Hitchcock that is so fascinating is that he was, you know, had a ton of friends that were in the queer community. He was known to frequent the pansy clubs in the twenties in London. And he and Alma were, were social with a lot of these queers, but the depictions of queerness in Hitchcock's work are a mixed bag. You have people like Caldecott and Charters who just happen to be queer and the lady vanishes are queer coded and are heroes of the piece or Isabel in Suspicion, who is a queer murder mystery author and just happens to be a character in the piece that is not fulfilling a role of villainy or hero, but they they exist. And I feel like a lot of King's work is about the same sort of inclusivity. And that's the thing that I think we should be celebrating is that King doesn't have to include queer characters, but had a, a savvy awareness 
of the world and marginalized people as probably somebody who felt marginalized himself because he writes from the place of the bullied and and most of his work his protagonists are on the receiving end of some sort of oppression in some way so they're and 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 usually if even if they're straight white men, they have a sense of yearning romantically that is also deeply relatable to, to queer people. If you're, if you're looking at something as heteronormative and, uh, you know, explicitly non-queer as Johnny Smith in the dead zone, there's something so queer about that character and also queer about the portrayal of, of him by Christopher Walken because he is a man who cannot have the romance that he wants and yearns for it. And that's often the place that we start in terms of relatability for these characters, whether they're queer or not. If they have something going on with them that puts them at the margins of society or makes them other in some way, and they're yearning to be inside the circle as opposed to outside of the circle, mm-hmm. you are laying a, a, a foundation and building a bridge to marginalized people to see themselves in your story, whether it's explicit or not. And I think that's something that King did. And you can argue all day long that certain depictions are tone deaf or uh, less tone deaf than others, but he made an effort to include people that other authors simply were not. And I feel like that has to be acknowledged. And uh, I am certainly grateful for those depictions as, as a queer person going like, oh, they're there. And I know this is not my world because it's a very straight world that these things are happening in. But this author is conscious enough to include people who are like me uh, in the narratives. And, and you can argue all day long about whether that person is a good person or a bad person. And as, as Guinevere Turner uh, says in the last episode of the season for Queer for Fear, we all know horrible homosexuals. Like we all know them there, you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's not, uh, you know, a unicorn to find a horrible homosexual right. uh, <laughs> or a horrible gay person or a horrible trans person. They exist. So, uh, you know, it then becomes a conversation about representation and how much good representation uh, allows for bad representation. And, and that is a, re- a, a real and valid question, but I'm coming out first making a statement as a a king defender in this regard and saying, yes, you may not have liked what you saw in some of these characters, but they were there, and that's huge. You came on and did a uh, basically a queer interpretation of Salem's Lot, and then you came back and you know walked us through Christine as sort of a trans allegory. Um, one thing that I don't recall ever discussing with you is the uh the hate crime that opens it mm. you yes. know with uh adrian mellon getting into a fight and uh getting thrown off a bridge and then pennywise eats him and it's you know if you go back and revisit it this is you know it's a sizable introduction it's not like right. uh, over chapter, and done with within 10 yeah, pages 
the chapter in the book is substantial and it's kind of a treatise on where queer people are in small town America right. in a way that was thoughtful and, and considered. So it's, it's, I actually have not seen it chapter two. Mm, really? Uh, I didn't because I, I, I didn't love it chapter one. I, oh, that's interesting. I, I liked it. I like you, Dottie, uh, <laughs> but I, I, I didn't love it, and I didn't find it scary. And there were some some moments in it that I found kind of baffling, uh, creatively, including like ending on a shot of of the kids where one of them has literally been gutted and his stomach is open and bleeding, and they're all just standing there happy to be alive. And I was like, <laughs> shouldn't you at least be applying pressure to your wound? But there was there were things like that 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 I didn't sink into the world that it felt uh, I loved the aesthetic of it. I thought the, the style of it was incredible. Mm. Pennywise is incredibly styled and uh, Bill Skarsgård did a wonderful job and the acting is amazing, but it was once again, one of those movies where I, I, I didn't feel terror uh, sure. because I was like, all these kids seem to be getting away pretty easy. Uh, mm. All things considered and uh, so when it chapter two came around, I was like, I don't know if I need to see this because I didn't feel like I was transported into the world that I wanted to be transported into with chapter one. So all of the discourse around Adrian Mellon's uh, opening of that that movie, I, I haven't seen the scene. I wasn't curious to see it uh, because I just I, I you know, I'm. I, I'm a bitch when it comes to these things. You know? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell you, it's it's not great um, because it, the opening of chapter two seems to really lean crazy heavily into the effeminate stereotype, you know, thing that I didn't get while reading the book. I mean, that's that's something that you know I think is should be noted here is that the Adrian Mellon section of the novel is reads incredibly progressive for its time and feels like it feels good even now reading it, which is crazy because you tell me any other, you know, (laughs) early eighties literature, you know, that is focusing on a a queer person and, and and tell me what holds up today. And there's not going to be a whole lot. Um, but there's, uh, there's just something about the way King wrote it. Um, that like really shocked me when I reread it about just how well, you know, it's just like, you know, Adrian Mellon's, just he's he's a guy with a boyfriend he's not the gay guy you know he's not the sitcom you know right right he's you know not stereotype that. right and and so you know i don't know there's just something about where he just writes him as a real person and he is the the person that is obviously the one you're supposed to be empathetic towards and maybe that's something that we can uh, there, there's a lot about this section that i really want to dig into with you brian but before this the only thing i time i can think of king writing about queer characters is it's the focus isn't on them so much as it is on the bigoted person like you're yes. in the mind and, and you're hearing the, the f-bomb you know from you know, from uh, from bigoted characters, which doesn't lead me to believe that King is necessarily sharing those sentiments, even in the early, you know, early days. Not um, at all. But Not I can. But I can. The only time I can think about him, like even featuring queer characters, like what doesn't hold up so much is the way people react to them. Not so much the author's intent with them. Um, yeah, because I had, very I, true. Yeah. 
Well, and I think that's like we're we're you know we're in the age of outrage, so it's it's it, we are rewarded for being upset about things, even though everything in my psychological makeup makes me step back from from right. those things because I'm like, ooh, like this feels like a confusing mass of emotion, and I don't know where the blood flow is coming from, so I don't even want to tap into it because it could just spray. Uh, but there's something about his awareness and depiction of bigotry that is uh, projected on him right. as opposed to the characters that are bigoted in his works. And, you know, we, we talked about Mark Petrie in Salem's Law. We, that character is introduced being called a queer on the playground and then promptly beats the shit out of his bully. And it's a great heroic introduction. And whether that character is intended to be queer or not, I, as a member of the queer community, am claiming him for all of us <laughs> because uh, it's it's a great sort of heroic journey. And he doesn't have any sort of crushes that would depict him as heteronormative in any way. And mm-hmm. all of his passions are weirdo things that his friends are saying he's a weirdo and his parents are saying he's a weirdo. So that that became for me an iconic representation of 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 queer characterization in king's work but going back to adrian mellon for uh, a moment there's something about this turning point in king's work with it that uh brought about a, a specific awareness and sensitivity and consideredness uh, on the subject matter that felt like it was informed by by bigger things, and you both experienced that yeah. on your your tour, right? Uh, and that's of uh, the killing of Charlie Howard, right? Yeah, I was. Do you want to talk about that, Scott? Because <laughs> this was like yeah. probably one of the top two or three moments of the whole banger and Bangor event for me. Like it really hit me. Like, yeah, for me, it was the most powerful moment on the tour, you know, where, uh, you take, uh, that SK tour up in, uh, up in Bangor, Maine. And, and I highly recommend it. We had a, we had a blast. Um, I've now done that tour three times. Could not recommend it any harder. Um, but you're essentially crisscrossing all over Bangor while, you know, they're pointing out this place or that place, and it's all Stephen King related stuff, right? Well, at one point on uh, the tour that we just did uh, uh, while we were up in Maine, uh, we were crossing one of the canals downtown, and they just kind of pulled up to on on one of the bridges going a, a, across the canal and were like, and told us the story of uh, Charlie Howard, who was whose death inspired um, the Adrian Mellon section of, of King's novel. And to my ears, it sounded almost identical. You know, this guy and his boyfriend, they're walking down the street. They start getting harassed by these local fucking goons. Um, One of whom they told us now goes around having gotten out of prison, goes around to high schools and, and, you know, basically preaches um, tolerance tolerance and acceptance. Yeah. Who's clearly like, you know, um, had his whole life changed by this horrible event. You know, he's still fucking, he's still a murderer. You know, let's not forget that. But, you know, points for, for doing the right thing right. after the fact. Um, right. And it just kind of hit like a ton of bricks sitting there on that bridge and like looking down into the water and 
and you know this guy drowned in like a foot of water he yeah, had an yeah, asthma yeah, attack he, he an fucking asthma. Yeah. yeah and you know the way they described it that that crime that murder uh rocked that fucking community and another thing that's really interesting like once once you get up into bangor you realize like how how remote that that place is it is yeah. the most picturesque town you can imagine it is exactly what you think Derry, Maine looks like in real life. You know, we are all and, all and of us were the, just taking photos of of just the buildings. Like, holy shit, we're in Derry because it looks <laughs> exactly like what in your mind's eye that's supposed to right. look like, right? So it was not only is it a powerful story and about how it like you know sort of brought this very real world problem that was certainly prevalent during the eighties into this very small town and and put this focus on them, but. And this, for for the gentle listener, this happened in 1984. So we are mm-hmm. fully aware of of the AIDS crisis and gay cancer and and the uh, the the acknowledgement or the the sort of system rejecting queers and not supporting queers and just sort of saying like, well, if it's only killing gay people, right? Let it finish its job. And and also a full fifteen years before Matthew Shepard. Yep. So, uh, which you know had nationwide notoriety yeah. uh, with his you know crucifixion, uh, roadside crucifixion on a barbed wire fence. Hmm. And so there's something about these stories like Charlie Howard that must have been happening all over the place for yeah. real and probably and, never fucking reported or like that we'll, we'll we'll never know about and it's like on the one hand it's like god if you if you think about the the, the sheer volume of those stories that have been underreported or that you're unaware of or, or whatever like it's almost like you don't want to know right because the reality of it would just be so fucking horrifying i bet hmm. Well, and that goes, I, I just real quick, that plays perfectly into why that moment on the tour was so impactful because they were talking about how it was a big deal locally, obviously. But when King wrote about it and was very open about like that it was based on this Charlie Howard death and or murder, um, at the time, they at least according to Jamie and Jen on the tour, that, that put the nationwide spotlight on Bangor, Maine, of all places, for... Right. Uh, you know, for, you know, this being a front for the, the fight against homophobia and for gay rights. And and they were saying that the impact that that had not just, um, you know, for the gay community, but for Bangor itself, like that just the mere fact of King uh, adapting that moment and putting it in such a hugely successful book and being so open about the real story behind it, that that uh, that like legitimately. Uh, you know, I don't know. It feels like Bangor is a fairly liberal town, you know, compared to the rest of Maine. Um, uh, and according to them on the tour, that that was one of the moments where the people in the town stood up and and uh, you know said we're we're going to be a little bit different than than the more rural you know as, aspects of of our state. And mm-hmm. and it became a you know uh, kind of a front line for the fight for for uh, gay rights. And, and, you know, most of these crimes, most gay bashings are not reported. So, uh, you know, there are 
so many silenced victims silencing themselves, their family silencing them that we don't know about. Uh, these these level of attacks and murders that happen that you know family members don't want to acknowledge that their loved one was murdered because of their homosexuality or queerness mm-hmm. in, in, in whatever way. So it's it's not even reported as a hate crime because they don't want to, they, they, they carry the societal shame and, and, you know, it's hard not to see a certain amount of, uh, their own complacency and, and perhaps even thinking like, well, you know, these, these loved ones of ours had it coming in some way because they broke the, broke the rules of, mm. of how to express yourself as, as a man or, or what have you. And, and, you know, as, as, as we are well aware, homosexuality uh, or, or queerness is, is a, an extrapolation of misogyny and anything being mm. feminine or receiver of the cock is, is considered uh, a, a, a dirty position that, you know, dogs and women occupy. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's, it's, it's so rife with so many like fucked up things about our society. And the biggest one of those is misogyny. And, uh, but if, you know, you have these boys who affectionately called the bridge that they murdered this man on the Chuckahoma bridge, mm-hmm. uh, you know, now running around and claiming penance for their sins, it's it's all incredibly unsatisfying. Like they're, like you said, it's like yeah, good for them for for speaking out and acknowledging it, but it doesn't change what happened. Ah, yes, it is time for the mid-roll ad read, and I get the dubious honor to introduce the one and only Mr. John Carpenter to tell you all a little bit more about the George A. Romero Foundation. This is John Carpenter, director, writer, and composer, and newest advisory board member of the George A. Romero Foundation. Celebrate the legacy of the godfather of horror by donating to the foundation today. 100% of your donation will go towards providing funding for young filmmakers and restoring and preserving George's work. We are aiming to raise $20,000 by Halloween. Visit GeorgeARomeroFoundation.org today and make your donation. And as George always said, stay scared. Pretty wild that we get John Carpenter reading ads for us on the show, don't you think? Yeah, I'll take that any day of the week. And uh, while we're here, I have a quick word for you about some Clive Barker shit. Uh, The original master of horror finally brings fans into his inner thoughts and workings in the book Decades in the Making, Clive Barker's Dark Worlds. Throwing open the doors to his production sketches, paintings, photos, and manuscripts, Dark Worlds shows the earliest sketches of Pinhead from the original Hellraiser and the creative process behind Candyman as well as the magical world of Aberat. All of it here alongside comments over the years from Stephen King, Neil Gaiman, Quentin Tarantino, Wes Craven, and more. Go to abramsbooks.com backslash Barker. That's A-B-R-A-M-S books.com backslash Barker and enter promo code Clive25 to receive 25% off your order. That's a hell of a mid-roll there. John Carpenter and Clive Barker. We're yeah, killing it. Horror killing it with these mid-rolls. We love it. We love it. Uh, but, but you know what's even get... better? 
getting back to the show. Getting back to the show. Let's do it. Do you think that's a turning point in in King's representation of of queerness? Because certainly, uh, you know, Father Callahan and Wolfskala and and those expressions, which are, you know, more positive. uh, Right came to be well i think i think eric is right in that it's not so much that in king's early writing that he's like he's writing you know like um really offensive gay characters because he's not it's it's the language that's used to describe him and of course it's it's usually coming out of the mouth of a bully and etc etc you know the issue with that is that you, you you ideally you sort of want something to balance that out you know, so that the it's not like, well, you're a, you're a really popular novelist and then everyone like, you know, a bunch of your books mention gay people, but they're only doing it to, you know, uh, when a, a bully or a villain or whoever calls someone the F slur. You know what I mean? Um, and so I, I do agree that it's 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 a turning point because it was him meeting that like fucking head on. And yeah. I don't think I really appreciated like what a move he was making there until I did that tour and until it was yeah. shown to me and until the story was told to me. And I was like, uh, you know, it, it felt like a lock turning or a key turning in a lock. It was like, holy yeah. shit, this was an even bigger deal than I realized. And particularly for this community. Um, it's a huge expression of allyship. Yeah. Yes. And, and I think that continues with father Callahan. And I think that elevation is mm. him sort of I don't know I don't know I don't know if I agree with myself on this anymore because <laughs> you know like we we did an episode on uh on elevation uh not long ago uh within the past year I think it, it's a bonus episode and um I think at the time I was pitching it as his sort of mea culpa for any of the you know, the clunky way that he had handled queer characters up to that point. And I no longer think as I'm saying all this out loud, I don't know if I agree with that anymore. I think that maybe it was the Adrian Mellon scene, you know, and then Mm -hmm. father Callahan and elevation is just, you know, maybe it wasn't the statement that I thought it was. Maybe it is just, it's a good yarn. First of all, you know, it's a, it's a fun story and it's very gentle and it makes you feel good to read it. And like, I fucking I, I love elevation for that, but um, well, it, especially recently, it feels like you know within the last five, six, seven years, he has taken a lot of he has taken a big step in that he went from like being an ally to portraying queer characters uh, in my way as perfectly as you can because you read something like later and the the, the mother character and has a girlfriend and it, it's not treated as special. It's just and now the mother character is going out with this cop girl, you know, yeah. it is just, it is day to day life. And the, through the main character's eyes, through the author's, you know, words, none of it's like, Oh wow, this is a strange and new thing. It's just yeah, like, it's, yep, it's and this not is addressed happening. other than the basic facts of the matter. Right. Which, which I think is, is a huge step, you know? And so that's probably where you can give elevation credit is. I feel like that's the second demarcation line where he's now, now his queer characters aren't, 
like, oh, and then here's the queer character in here or what whatnot. It is like now these are just people, you know, interacting just as the cis straight people are, you know. Um, but I do think that that Adrian Mellon thing is probably the line where the first time where he he was like, OK, I got to, you know, make sure that I'm, you know, <laughs> thinking a little bit more about this. And it could be because of the Charlie Howard killing. It could be because of the AIDS epidemic. It could have been all that stuff was changing a lot of minds at the time. And and I think that it's just a shade different, a shade more respectful of after that. Well, sure. I think it's, I think we would all agree that, that Stephen King is a progressive and sure. is, you know, seems to be liberal leaning, if not actively liberal. And, you know, the, the Adrian Mellon character and that experience, which is sort of taking a slice of life of what is actually happening. We can't ignore, even though it is a, a point of contention that, uh, these things happen. And I think King is often criticized for either negative portrayals or queers in negative circumstances, but he's a horror movie author. So of course, <laughs> you know, his characters, all of them are going to be in tough situations. And certainly, you know, as we discussed earlier, uh, Mark Petrie was, was a huge impact for me when, when I read that and went like, Oh, wow. Uh, there's somebody like me in in this horror story, mm-hmm. but the 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 other early point in reading King where I was like, this guy's giving me characters that I'm not reading in any of my other books. Uh, it was was Dana in The Stand, and you know Dana is a hero who self sacrifices, and yes, that has become a trope. Whether of, of all marginalized people that that are being brave, so their right. white heteronormative kind uh, community members can be protected or saved, but it's 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 it, a cousin it's, to the magical Negro trope. It, it is, it is, and which which you know there you know we've seen that in The Shining, we've seen that in The Talisman, like Green that's, Mile, that's Green Mile, um, but it's also like I, I feel like we are so eager to jump down anybody's throat for not thinking exactly like we do that. We're not acknowledging and being grateful for people who have a platform to include us in the depictions warts and all. And often the criticisms for, for Dana and the stand is that yes, you know, she's first a liberal and then a, a, a lesbian and then bisexual, but like, having attractions to uh you know opposite sex characters is something that, that that we're aware of in the queer community of you know bisexual invisibility like there's there's something in in the criticisms of Dana and the stand as sort of being uh well she's not really gay she's a bisexual and so that doesn't count which is really fucked up to be coming from the queer community because you're saying that that B in the LGBTQ doesn't really count or have a place because it's not, uh, because they can pass more, but just because somebody can pass in their dynamic doesn't mean that they're not navigating really stressful circumstances and the dysmorphia of their projected self and their authentic self being, uh, you know, 
scrutinized at any given moment. And for me, Dana was a massive hero. I loved that she was a hero when I read right. the standard. I loved that she was willing to do whatever it took. And she failed ultimately, but I loved that she took the swing and then she knew that she was going to be tortured and then she suicided. So she couldn't be tortured and, and reveal any of the identities. And I remember her trying to jump out the window and when they grabbed her and wouldn't let her, she's thrashing about on the the broken glass to cut her throat so they couldn't torture her for the information. Yes, that is falling into a barrier gaze trope, but I had a queer hero. Hmm, right. And that was awesome. Well, I, I want to ask you a kind of a personal question. Like you've you've told us that like you grew up in a small town, right? Yeah. Yeah, you know, where that serial killer was in operation. Yeah. Um, it wasn't me. I'm I'm curious who your first gay friend was. I didn't have one in my hometown. None at all. None. No. Well, you, the, uh, there was. Or were there, there was, or were there queer kids that you just weren't friends with? No. Nope. Nobody was out. It was. It was. It was completely unsafe. So nobody in my high school. There was one kid who was kind of amazing. That like everybody sort of knew he was, and he would. Uh, he had. Uh, he was an odd duck and I like became friends with him later on Facebook. Um, but he was really, really brave and sort of acknowledged, but then he went, he moved away, um, Mm -hmm. after shortly after that. And I always got the sense that he moved away because it was no longer safe for him because he did kind of come out, but he wasn't my friend. And this was a small, a small town. So, I knew him. I had classes with him and I always, I was like, Oh, I, I wish I could talk to him about this. But the moment he sort of came out, his family moved away and that's probably no accident, but none of my, I, I I didn't know anybody that was queer except for the next town over where I worked in the movie theater uh, and it was at the box office and would sit in the box office and sort of do my work there and my homework. And he the, the, he was affectionately known as the fag. And he was the gay man in the next town over and kind of the, the one that everybody knew was gay and was out. Everybody else was sort of secretive about it or kept to themselves. And I remember one time, you know, he would always come and he would talk to me about movies and he would say, Things like, you know, when you move away from here and you're no longer around your family or you're no longer around all of these people, you're going to come to a place of of such joy because you can actually be who you are. He, he never said, like, I think you're gay. And I never felt that he was preying on me, but he was a, a man in his late 30s. Uh, talking to a 16-year-old boy about it getting better, kind of. Yeah, you know, he yeah. was sort of launching that campaign. Um, but those were kind of the only expressions of, of queerness. And you know, there was rumored places where guys would cruise and then you'd hear about a story about someone who got their head cut off. Uh, because they... <laughs> They picked somebody up at that place. Unrelated, then, but uh, unrelated. <laughs> uh, so it was it was an interesting insular, you know, 
very gossipy. Everybody was in your business. Uh, it was small town in all the worst ways, but in all the, in all the best ways too. Uh, so it's, it, and it was smack dab in the middle of it. And, and sort of the AIDS crisis shook out some identities of people who, that you might've known were queer, uh, but now you know they are queer because they're dying of AIDS. Mm. Uh, so it w- it was not a safe place, a safe environment. Um, and I've had friend, like close friends of mine that were, you know, my primary friend group, members of that friend group saying like, I just remember all the stupid stuff that we said about gay people around you and how you were silent. And, and like, it kills me that I, I couldn't be a support for you there. And I was like, look, it, it, I was already unsafe living in the house that I was living in. So your contribution to that was uh, completely negated by the, you know, the, the, the sword that was constantly hanging over my head, living in uh, a bigoted abusive home. So Stephen King and the books that I read were the places that I saw queerness, not in my neighbors, not across the street. And so I don't think we can underestimate the value of Stephen King, however you categorize these characters, uh, uh, whether they're positive representations or negative representations, it is representation and that counts. Yeah. It may not count now in the public discourse of uh, you make me mad because you didn't see me exactly how I want to be seen. Um, but I think that's, that's something that hopefully we are growing past and learning through acknowledging our narcissism, that it isn't always all about us. And just because you're one letter of the LGBTQ AAAII alphabet isn't, isn't being represented. It doesn't negate the work in and of itself, uh, because it's still working to build a bridge to queer representation. I'm just, I'm just thinking. Yeah, you, you know, yeah. you just knock me on my ass. I'm, I'm, <laughs> it's got me thinking about what well, the reason I asked the question to begin with, you know, is I wonder. I've never heard Stephen King talk about having a gay friend, you know, right. and for me, that was really the, the he has a queer daughter. That's true. That's true. And like before he was a father, I wonder if he had a gay friend. And, you know, I'm, it's, and that's that's kind of what that's what I'm thinking about, because, like, again, um, you know, I grew up in Dallas. It was very casually racist, very casually homophobic, you know, and there were jokes flying left and right as they as they did in the 80s and the early 90s where, you know, uh, gay people were the fucking targets. And I my my impression is that. For a lot of people, it wasn't that there was actual hate in their hearts. It was just like, this is kind of how it is. This is this is how it was. And this was how they were raised by their families. You know, I, I grew up with kids whose parents were fucking hardcore racists or homophobes. You know, mine weren't. But, um, you know, I, I had like a black friend when I was younger. I had, you know, Asian friends. I had, you know, I was introduced very early on to people of all all stripes, but it wasn't until I got into high school that I, I, a, a friend of mine came out to me as gay, and that was at military school. You know, it was like and right you threw at, him over a bridge, which is very right. It was, you know, um, that's 
you don't realize that's kind of shitty because uh, he died. He, oh, and no. he died on a fucking bridge. Um, he was. Uh, uh, I don't want to get emotional about this, but um, he was uh, he was um, he was my roommate at military school for about a year. His name was Adam. His name was Adam Halt. And uh, his. Uh, his family was very wealthy. Uh, parents were divorced and he lived with his dad and his brother. Dad was a fucking asshole, you know, and when we got out of military school, he went into the Air Force and I went off to college and then we all somehow or another ended up living back in Dallas. And uh, that was when he like one night he showed up at my place at like two in the morning and I happened to be awake with my girlfriend and a friend of ours at the time. And we all knew Adam and uh, he was like stationed up in like fucking Abilene or somewhere like somewhere nowhere near where we were at this particular moment in time. Right. And all of a sudden he was at the gate to my apartment complex asking to be let in. And I was like, what the fuck is Adam doing here? Like it's one in the morning and fucking he uh, he comes in and he slammed down a bottle of whiskey on the table. and was like, I have something I want to talk to you all about. And we were like, OK. And he's like, well, I'm gay. And we all sat there just kind of looking at each other like it was surprising because I think we were even to that point, like. How do I talk about this? Adam wasn't flamboyant in any way, you know, <laughs> he worked on fucking cars and he liked sports and he was like, I always just thought he was terrible, you know, getting a date. You know, it turns out he it turns out he was getting laid left and right. He was just never telling me about it. But, um, you know, as soon as the words were out of his mouth, you know, we had we had questions, you know, as like, I guess we were like 19 years old at the time, maybe, maybe, maybe 20. I learned more about the gay experience from that dude than anyone else in the, in the short time that I had with him after that, because it wasn't like maybe two or three years later, he fucking uh he was on an overpass in Dallas. <laughs> Horrible timing on that. But he, um, yeah, he was on a, on an overpass uh, in Dallas. He had somebody else in the car. Uh, it was raining and a fucking 18 wheeler uh, lost control and basically smashed his car up against the side of the guardrails. No. Nothing left, just vaporized. And um, the one of the things that always sticks with me is that like you know it it sort of fell upon me to deliver a eulogy at that funeral um wow. i was like the guy who was the best at doing uh, the best at writing or you know speaking in front of a group so it was like obviously you'll be the one to do this and i was also the closest with adam and i'll never forget his fucking father got wind of the fact that i was eulogizing him at the wedding and that the eulogy would address the fact that he was gay and the fact that it, you know, um, that being, uh, that being so close with him and being such good friends, uh, had really enlightened me in a way, you know, that I hadn't had before. And fucking the, the father came up to me at the wedding and like demanded that I not do this and was like, hmm. I will fucking drag you out of here. If you say a word about my son being gay. And I was like, if Adam were here right now, this is what he would want. And Adam was one of my best friends. I'm going to fucking, I'm going to do what he would have wanted to do. And you know, you can fuck off. 
you know, I understand that this is your son's wedding, but, or excuse me, funeral, but like, this is who he was. And you can't hide from that even in his fucking death, you know? Right. Anyway, um, my point in all this is that I think for, I think for a lot of people that the, the turning point in being accepting of other people or other kinds of people, you know, be they're gay or straight or, you know, another race or whatever you want to name um, is just being friends with them, you know, and realizing they're just people like anyone else. And like Brian was saying earlier, some of them are assholes, too, you know, like it, they're yeah. just like everybody else. Um, and so I wonder if if at some point Stephen King had a had a gay friend that sort of influenced the way he 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 looks at that uh well, I think, I mean, you look at, uh, he was a teacher. So clearly anybody who knows anything about humanity can recognize a queer kid. Sure. You know, you may, you may sort of go like, oh, you know, they'll grow out of it or they're just, you know, this way or that way. But I, I think a lot of adults who find themselves in professions where they are the stewards of, of young folk uh will invariably find themselves in a situation where they recognize queerness in a child and have some sort of response to that sure and and so i you know pr- totally projecting i would imagine as a teacher you're aware of just how difficult it is to be different sure and that 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 kind of environment and you know, Stephen King's a big weirdo. You know, he like thank God he's a big weirdo, and he also hates and also, bullies. And yeah. I think yes. that I think you you may be on the right track here because he would recognize that going on in a classroom. He would see a kid getting picked on for being effeminate or what have you. And it does, like to your point, I think there is something about it's so easy, and and it, it's a thing that we have to catch ourselves in doing it's so easy to have someone vilify somebody else. Uh, just if you're looking in, in, in simple social gossip terms, how often we believe what somebody tells us about someone until we are, we witness or experience it ourselves in right. some fashion. So right. people are constantly being slandered and maligned and, and we certainly know uh, people that we love who've been accused of horrible things and we know that they're not true. Uh, but the person accusing them of those things is weaponizing a woke culture for their own narcissistic mm-hmm. attention, mm-hmm. which is sick in and of itself. Uh, but that's, that's not to say that we are all dealing with this with equal skills of, of conflict resolution and social navigation, Mm -hmm. because if, you know, I, I was raised in an environment where, uh, it was, you know, a, a, a run of racial and, you know, queer epithets in terms of, who was not accepted and it was, you know, ninjas and chinoiserie and fagioli. I'm using things that sound like the racial epithets, but aren't the racial epithets Yeah, uh, that were constantly brought up in, in terms of the other experience. And we forget like 
all you have to do is watch Trump supporters talk and you go like, oh, lizard brain. Like we're, <laughs> we're like we're still like half of us are still just using our lizard brain and we're afraid of anything that's different. And we're afraid of everything that we've been told to be afraid of. Right. And when you kind of look at these expressions of why folks in certain communities are villainized, whether they are black or Asian or Latino or queer or queer and all of those things <laughs> right. that came before them. Uh, it's real easy to start slipping into us, them mentalities that mm -hmm. always felt so odd for me because we're like, we're not at a crosstown basketball team rivalry. Like these are human beings and we shouldn't treat people as if they are on another team. Uh, and, and that's, that's kind of what I, I kept on getting from, from King's depictions was that I, I didn't feel like he was talking about queer characters who were on another team. He was talking about queer characters who were on our team, the global team, the protagonist team, and, and trying to navigate whatever the narrative is, whether it's a, a global pandemic with the stand or, you know, small town homophobia and it, right. there's, there's something about, uh, just the presence of those stories that for me were really helpful. And yes, I loved reading Clive Barker for the first time and seeing a short story where two guys driving through Eastern Europe, you know, stop by the side of the road and go off into a field of wheat and suck each other's dicks. And there's a line about the taste of semen that blew my mind. Is that in the hills, uh, the cities? Yes. Which is my favorite <laughs> yeah, short story. Fuck, yeah, I love that one. It's amazing. <clears throat> and it's about so many different things. But I think if you look at King in comparison to Clive Barker, who's, you know, living in the experience as the, the marginalized people, and then King's experience as not the marginalized person, but somebody who is aware and sensitive to the presence of the marginalized people in his world. And that's why he weaves them in, marbles them throughout uh, his stories is that he's aware they exist and isn't going to deny them that existence. Mm -hmm. And and so it's a different kind of heroism is a, is a strong word, but champion is, is perhaps uh, he is championing marginalized and bullied people in his work through a wide variety of, of, of uh, methods. And, you know, there's a lot of criticism of, of his depiction of queer women uh, being, you know, they were turned gay by bad interactions mm -hmm. with men and like, you know, people who were not turned queer by bad reactions to men uh, take huge problems with that, but I also know people who may not have been turned queer by their, their bad experiences with men, but realized they had better options because of their bad, mm. uh, that, that it comes down to representation and a wide variety of representation, uh, with these characters. And I feel like there is a wide variety of representation in King's work with different queer characters. Right. Has and he written a queer lead in a novel? 
I don't think he has. And that's sort of, you know, but he would probably get his ass handed to him yeah. if he did yeah. for appropriation. Well, so I wanted to ask, like, how would you feel about that? I would love it. I would love it. I would love to hear, you know, because I think the, if I'm writing a black character, I have a circle of friends that are black storytellers that I go to and say, is this appropriate? Is this inappropriate? Uh, you know, where, you know, where does this uh, fall? And I've been corrected on things where I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. Thank you for pointing that out to me so clearly of what I shouldn't be doing. They're like, right. Brian, and, don't, don't write all your black characters like the airplane uh, dudes. Yes, in airplane. Yes. I speak jive. Um, <laughs> so there's something about, uh, you know, if he wrote a, a queer character as his central protagonist and had in-depth conversations with his daughter about uh, their queerness and, and what uh, gives him sort of cultural and, and specific uh, points of relatability, then, then yes, by all means, please do. Um, because I think there's something about, you know, the, we, we are so protective now of, you know, I, I was talking to queer friends who are mad at the new Kate Blanchett film because it's a story of a queer woman told by straight men and they didn't even want to see the movie mm -hmm. uh, because that was a barrier to entry. And I was like, God, I don't want to only write about queer people because oftentimes I'm, I'm, I'm bored by queer people. Uh, and I certainly am, uh, am not rushing out to see any story about gay white jocks. Mm -hmm. uh, but because honestly, I, I, I think they're boring as hell. And you, you know, there's, but that's, I, I'm allowed to say I, 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 I don't like certain categories of queer people because of their, utilization of uh the cycle of abuse to perpetuate abuse on their own kind whether that's you know the masculinity police of you know which or it's bottom shaming which boggles my mind that so many queer people i know bottom shame and i'm like i know you've had a dick in your ass and <laughs> it probably felt great because you have all the buttons to push to make it feel great. So why are you making somebody else feel less than right. because they like to get fucked? And, and I know that you have been as well, yet you're taking on the position of this, this kind of male heteronormative, like you have to be the penetrator in order to be, uh, to, in order to have self-respect and it's all kind of messy and ugly. So when, when queer people as a community come out for Stephen King and say, you know, he, he doesn't have great representation in his work. I kind of just want to say, uh, let's go through your garbage. Right. Let's go, let's go through your trash because I bet you may have no fats, no femmes, no blacks, no Asians in your grinder profile, and therefore should shut the fuck up about this stuff. <laughs> and who is is having qualified, uh, inspirational, aspirational representation in their work? Uh, 
So it's it's really it's really messy, and I think that's one of the things that Billy Eichner did so well in in Bros is that he he depicted the internal kind of cannibalization of the queer community of everybody saying you know right now victimhood is currency. So there's there's a lot of folks who are trying to have the most money in their bank uh, as as informed by their level of victimhood in their life. And that's a real thing. And and people are victimized because of their queerness and trans people get a lot of shit that that they shouldn't have and are absolutely in their right to complain about representation and their their human safety in this society but we don't have to take everybody else down in order to build ourselves up and that's that's something that we're we're, we're kind of talking about in terms of how messy queerness is in terms of the LGBTQ alphabet. Uh, and so as a queer person who didn't have anybody that I could talk to my queerness about when I read about Dana and the stand, when I read about Mark Petrie and Salem's lot, I was so grateful for what Stephen King was doing. There's something to be said about recognizing an ally when you see it, like they don't yes. have to be perfect. And, and in King's case, he's obviously not, but you know, at, at all points, but nobody is. I'm he's not, not imperfect. You know, I mean, and here's, here's the thing is like people, you know, I grew up in the eighties and when you see movies, like say the monster squad where the bullies, you know, are, are dropping the F bomb left and right, you know, just teasing people. That's what happened. You know, it's like, I Mm -hmm. I think that it's, you know, him writing about that, especially in the eighties is very much a reflection of what was going on at the time. And if you just look at the context of all those characters, like I'm, I'm struggling. I can't think of a negative uh, like a villain. It's not like the Norman Bates. He doesn't have his Norman Bates. I guess the library policeman is a, is a, uh, a molester, you know, um, <clears throat> pedophile. And he, yes. he's got that, but it's like, other than that, it's like, there's almost every queer character I can think of that King wrote about. He wrote about as a, as you said, a hero or somebody who is at the mercy of, of bullies who are obviously not the, the good people. Right. Um, so even in his his more problematic era of writing about uh, queer characters or writing for queer characters, he seems to have always been on their side, you know, which is not very common in popular literature. It's not very common at the time he was writing in the 70s and 80s. Um, and so I think you just kind of have to look at where his heart is. And, and he was never on the side of, of the people dropping the F, F slur. You know, he right. was always on the side Agreed. of the people. Um, and <clears throat> a, a, as we've discussed multiple times, it's because King always sides with the outsider, not the literal outsider, obviously. But, uh, yes. you know, that's that's why, you know, we keep bringing up that your queer reads on things work so often is because King, whether or not he's intending, you know, the, the relationships at hand to be, you know, uh, interpreted as queer relationships, he's on the side of the people who are ostracized and, you know, and, and always has been, and has been very clear in his work. Well, and, and I think there's something about just his acknowledgement and recognition that queer people go through a, a lot of hurdles that perhaps non-queer people don't, uh, 
and that can also inform bad behaviors or strange behaviors or eccentricities that when you're hearing a story, I want to be surrounded by eccentric characters because that's why I'm here is to be engaged and interested. And so even when you get something like, excuse me, Horace DeWint in, in The Shining with Roger the Dog Man, there's something about that that's like, well, he's writing about these people and imagining what it was like for them to navigate their lives as queer people. And when you are surrounded by oppressive forces and you do not see yourself in your neighbor or on a screen anywhere, that there is going to be loneliness and frustration and those things can manifest in all sorts of different ways uh, is interesting. You know, it's, it's, it's a, a thoughtful exploration and, and, you know, he may not have the, the, the tools of sexual awareness to, to navigate like true queerness, but he's giving me enough to feel represented and seen in his work. And, and that's vital and important for somebody who has as big a platform as he does. Right. I wonder how much, um, because we've touched on a little bit, the fact that Naomi King is, you know, is queer and she's also a minister, by the way, Uh, she's Unitarian uh, minister. uh, And I think she's married to a Unitarian (laughs) minister as well. Um, You know, I wonder how much of like when that hit King, like, I don't know that there's been very much, written or uh, they've done interviews about it or whatnot. Not that I've come across. Uh, so, but it feels to me like you, much to Scott's point when King has that in his life and he has a daughter-in-law and he's got, you know, he, he's obviously embraced uh, his, his daughter uh, and, you know, as her full self, um, no matter, you know, uh, uh, whatever preconceived notions he might've had in his, his mind as a parent, you know, I wonder if that has influenced why his later work, the more recent stuff, say the last 10 years, even going into revival, you know, where there's, you know, one of the, the Astrid, you know, ends up with a, a lesbian, uh, lover at the end, you know, it's like, I wonder how much of that kind of more natural approach to writing queer characters comes from, uh, Naomi and in, you know, his interactions with, with her and the discussions he's had with her and her partner and, and all that, like, uh, that, that's another angle to, you know, to, to this whole thing that I just don't know if we have a lot about, you know, or we know a lot about, because I think, you know, that's kind of a private thing to them. I don't hear him talking about it a lot. Yeah. And I imagine if she is, you know, a minister and, uh, you know, has her life, I imagine she is trying to differentiate that from her, you know, father's footprint in, sure. in some capacity. And, you know, we're all, we're all kind of guessing about why these things exist uh, and, and, and his work and, and what motivated him and projecting on what his, his intentions are, which is the point of this podcast, uh, and and why yeah, it's right. so uh, delightful is that you we we are guessing about Stephen King's intentions, yeah. and we only have our own experiences to project an understanding on on what we're uh, culling from yeah. from his work. Of course, sure. and that's 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 part of the fun of what you gentlemen do with this podcast is bring these things into a personal point of view that is 
you know, he could be a raging homophobe. We would never know. But yeah. the experience that I have as a reader of his fiction is that I, I, I feel more comforted and secure in uh, being safe in his world as a queer person than I did in my own home growing up. Hmm. Well, that's a substantial thing to say. And, and I can imagine that being the case. You know, again, just to really put a fine point on it, you know, uh, early in this conversation, I was talking about his his clunkiness in, in regards to uh, queerness. And I don't I don't believe for a single second that King is anything less than a liberal, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't think with a with a queer daughter or given the fact that he has put, you know, uh, you know, uh, verboten words in the mouths of characters who, uh, who are, who are mostly villains. I don't think any of that, I don't think that would indicate that he is, that he harbors any sort of, you know, uh, ill will towards, yeah. towards gay folks. I think he's, I think, I think, you know, we've said this a million times on the fucking podcast. He's a, he's a blue collar guy made good. And and he's maintained that I've been in a room with him. I've looked this man in the eyes. He's he could not be more of <laughs> just a down home good boy. And I don't think uh, I don't think he was raised that way. I don't think he's he's got any hate in his heart for anyone other than people that are trying to do uh, other people harm, right, you know, right. a.k.a. Other Republicans. Yes. Yeah. Other than <laughs> other people who have hate in their heart. And right. Susan Collins. He doesn't like that Susan Collins very much. Brian, yeah. do you want to hear something fucking crazy? When we were on this yes. tour, uh, they like pointed out a house uh, on the same street where Stephen King's house is. And they were like, yeah, that first of all, this house was gorgeous, you know, as all the uh, all the houses in that neighborhood were. And it was seven hundred thousand dollars. So that's wow. the first the first hurdle of unbelievability to uh to overcome here and then the second thing was guess who owned that house before it went on sale suzanne collins <laughs> lived on the same fucking street could you believe that like i was i was dumbfounded by this information i'm imagining him going over there at night and fucking toilet paper in her house I, I certainly should have it coming. And, <laughs> yes. Well, you know, one of the things that I think is also an interesting distinction, particularly when we're talking about queer representation in King's work, is that King isn't a super sexualized writer. No. Like his, like that, like he is, he is a romantic, and and he understands yearning, uh, but he's not somebody who's going to talk about the the you know the texture of vaginal fluid or the taste of semen and in his in his writing like the he tends to get a little bit he becomes a little bit more glossed when he's talking about sexual moments in his work and and there you know one of my favorites is when uh the the glick parents tried to have sex after losing both of their boys and they just collapsed into tears and and couldn't do it because everything about it reminded them of their lost children. It's that level of really insightful nuance that is outside of the, the kind of purified sexual space that he's commenting on, as opposed to the, you know, the, the inside of the circle of, of, of sexiness. And 
that's something that when you're looking at a representation of, of people who are othered sexually in terms of their identity, except for the asexuals who are not having the sex, but are still defined by their lack thereof, mm-hmm. uh, you, you can't expect him to start depicting the the wetness of that reality uh, when he doesn't do that for his straight characters either, which I find interesting. Like he's, he, he's like, I would love to see Clyde Barker and Stephen King in a very explicit conversation about sex and sexuality and just to see how uh, they, what colors they choose to paint with. And that conversation would be fascinating to me. Be funny if if King sent Barker like flying out of the the room, just in a, in a (laughs) recall. like, Oh my God, you're so much crazier than I would have thought. (laughs) Cause you go in there. I never thought about doing that and I've done everything. (laughs) (laughs) You're a madman. (laughs) I hope he does. I I hope Stephen King is an incredible lay. (laughs) Do you, what, what do you think? You thinking yes or no? <laughs> um, I, you know, like I, uh, like people often that I've thought would be incredible lays turn out not to be, and people who I assume are not going to be turn out to be. So I think there's such a dysmorphia between your sexual self and your, you know, mm-hmm. public self that it's it's hard to predict. I think he's a freak. Oh, and I think he, I think he can, I think he can. You know, I think he's got some prowess. That's my that's my uh, that's my verdict on this one. I hope so. God, I, I hope he's, he's not listening to this episode. Uh, but but he's he's got that that quiet quality, you know that that sort of I, I I feel oftentimes harbors a stone cold freak, and right, and, right. I, and I think that yeah, I mean. In that British way that like yeah. everybody's so yeah. uh, polite and gentlemanly and they're like, nice shit in your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a ride on the fuck's all, why don't we? Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> fuck. All right. Well, uh do we have anything else we want to say following <laughs> that? I mean that, that, that we could end the episode that's with. quite the button. Uh, on this on this episode, but um, uh, I, I'm out of questions for you, Brian. It's, it's been an interesting discourse. You know, I think there's there's you know we've been chatting uh, an hour and a half on subject uh, and you know, a half hour. <laughs> I think we started at 20 minutes in. We're like an hour um, 20, on, yeah. like in terms of uh, on top of conversation. Topic. But I right, I right. think that you know. I feel like I've I covered what I wanted to cover. Vespi, you got anything? No, yeah. I mean, I think that we've hit all the 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 topics I've wanted to. I'm sure that there could be a very good investigative, like deep dive into all of his mm-hmm. queer characters um, and the homophobic characters and and how they're portrayed. But uh, and you'll on- you'll see that on a second season of Queer for Fear if we have it. Perfect. Oh, nice. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Because we have a whole episode that's queer for King and gets into all, and it was one of those that we were going to do in the first volley, and then it just sort of got pushed later. 
but it, it does get into all of the queer thematics of, mm. of these protagonists, whether they are explicitly queer or representationally queer or just queer themed. And, and that's an interesting discussion right. as, as you, you try to break apart the poetry of these characters and interpret them and project yourself on them or not. Mm. And, and that's part of the fun of being an audience member is that we are controlling how we consume the stories. And if we want to see uh, a, a, an ally in being inclusive of, of queer communities, that's what we will see. And if we want to see a villain who's not getting us right, uh, that's what we'll see as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, for my for my experience, Stephen King is no villain and and he made me feel uh seen when no one else could see me no it's a perfect note to to wrap this up on uh brian thank you so much for being here again and and blowing our minds once again with your color commentary like you you blew my mind i was very touched by your story with your friend and Mm -hmm. uh you know i think that's what we we need is uh we need allyship. We don't, we shouldn't be out to get the, uh, you know, the straight white guys who are allies just because they fall into the demographic that has traditionally oppressed us. Uh, (laughs) We should recognize that, that we have allies everywhere and stop using blanket statements to discredit people whose voice can also lift us up. For sure. You got allies here and, uh, you know, as I think we've demonstrated, you've got an ally in Stephen King. Um, Absolutely. Thank you again so much for being here. This is a blast. And we'll... What the fuck is that ringtone? Exactly. It's, it's my phone. I'm okay, sorry. but what is it doing? It's, 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 a, it's a ringtone of a stupid French song that uh, I put on. What when, song? Uh, a specific person. It's it's Au Soleil. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, I'm sorry about that. Just cut it out. Edit, edit, edit. No, I think we want to leave that one in. (laughs) You haven't named the person. I think it's fine. It's obviously Uh, Soleil Moon Fry. Yes, it is Soleil Moon Fry, which, you know, she knows what she did. And why I'm avoiding her calls. Brian, Um, thank you again. Uh, I'm going to talk to you off air here in just a second about this idea we want to pitch you. But, um, you know, always a pleasure for you to stop by. We're we're and thank you. And it's, it's, it was lovely for me to hear about your experiences, particularly in Bangor and with you know, Charlie Howard and, and how impactful that was sure. for you, because that's how we change minds and hearts, I guess. <clears throat> Many thanks to Brian Fuller for once again, gracing us with his insight, his empathy, his, his amazing intellect. Yes, yes. His, his auditor. <laughs> His auditory, auditory musk? Yes. His auditory yes. musk? Yes. That's I not weird that's... at all. We should no, say totally that. No, totally not. It's so, totally normal to say. You're right. But whatever it is he's bringing it. to the show, we appreciate it. Yes, of course. Always a pleasure to hear from Brian. And uh, for anyone that listened to that, uh, we did talk to Brian about our idea uh, uh, for next year's Big King Cast event. And guess what? He wants in. So uh, maybe we'll, maybe we'll, uh, you'll get to see him in the flesh sometime next year. Uh, mm. Cross your fingers for that. Um, and while we're talking about that, uh, mm. I, I guess I'll go ahead and introduce or reveal what this week's bonus episode Ooh, is going to sure. be, uh, on the Patreon this Friday, um, Eric and I, and, uh, possibly his brother, although 
probably not given the technical com- uh, complications we just ran into while trying to record this episode. Um, <laughs> we'll be regaling you with uh, a first person account of our time spent in Bangor, Maine uh, a couple of weeks ago. We just got back from that live event we just did up there with Mike Flanagan and Kate Siegel. It went amazingly well. We had a blast up there, got into some misadventures. We're going to be talking about that. Um you know, places we at, the dispensaries we went to, the people we met, uh, what our uh, opinions on the on the on the event itself and the show and the tour and all of that stuff are. Um, look forward to that this Friday on the Kingcast Patreon. That's patreon.com backslash the Kingcast. Wonderful. And then next week we are also jumping off of this uh <laughs> this amazing Brian Fuller interview and and uh going from one Interesting deep dive into King into another because the topic next week is Stephen King's insomnia, which brings mm-hmm. us into some very, I don't know, dangerous one star review waters for, for us. Yeah, socially uh, conscious territory, uh, yes. which, yes, it does tend to bring out those reviews. So we look forward to those. Thank you in advance. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, just as a reminder that for the rest of our audience, uh, we get yelled at every time we say anything even remotely political on this show. So please take the time to go over to iTunes and leave us a five star review. I don't care if you say anything other than show good, uh, but just click that button and uh, be on your way and it will mean the world to us. For sure. And our guest is also... Uh, also somebody of, of interest. This is mm-hmm. a, one of the first times we've dug into kind of YouTube personality. So this is, this is the, f- the first time she will appear on the show. She's a big Stephen King fan, big YouTube personality, and has a lot of, uh, loaded opinions on, on insomnia, on the topic of abortion, the topic of, of terrorism. I mean, there's so much to go over. Lots of Dark Tower shit. She's big, big, big into Dark Tower. So we talk a lot about the Dark Tower connections to Insomnia. Mm-hmm. So uh, Insomnia is a really interesting book, and it's one that doesn't get talked about a whole lot. So I'm excited for y'all to hear. Yeah, we've done uh, a bonus episode before on it, but we've never done uh, one in the main feed. So we're uh, we're hyped for y'all to hear this one. Yeah, I think it's going to be solid. So you got a good week ahead of you is what we're saying. You got our banger and Bangor chat. You got some insomnia shit to hear next week. We're bringing you the goods, babies. That's what we do. Yeah. And next week's bonus episode is going to be a banger as well. So um, that's all I got. My tank is empty. Uh, It's been a long day. Yeah. Yeah. Long, long day. So we will let y'all go. But see y'all next week for insomnia and this uh, Friday on our Patreon for... The banger and bangor behind the scenes. Adios, folks. The Kingcast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. <laughs>